comes a point uh, in different times and different events that we would call that this thing was a turning point for us. Like we'll experience something, there'll be some event, something that happens, and we'd say, hey, that is a turning point for me. And from that point on, things either got better or maybe they went downhill from there. And we can say, hey, that was a turning point. Things were one way and then they changed after that moment. And for me, when I think of different times when there were turning points, one that stands out to me is when I was at Mercer and I was on the football team, I can remember the turning point of my Mercer football career. And it came really early. So we were a part of the first team, so we're practicing, we're getting things ready, and we had gotten workout or started workouts and everything, and we had our very first practice ever. So there's a lot of excitement, anticipation, what would come from what we were doing. And we're there early on in practice. We're doing our, in our stretch lines, getting ready for the practice. And my position coach, the receivers coach, had already formed a relationship with one of my teammates named Darius. And he and Darius were kind of joking with one another. And my coach was giving him a hard time because he did not know what an oxymoron was. And so he's making fun of him because he's like, Darius, how are you in college and you don't know what an oxymoron is? And he's, he's making jokes about it while we're all stretching and everyone's laughing and having a good time. And, and you know, for many of us, we've known what that was for a long time. An oxymoron is a literary device where there's two apparently contradictory things that are used in one phrase. So you got icy hot or bittersweet. And, and so he's making fun of him, and we're all laughing. But then he turns and he looks at me and he says, Ryan, tell him an oxymoron. And I kid you not, I don't know if I could have told him my name because my mind went so blank in that moment. Like, he looks at me thinking I'm just going to spout out something because it's so easy, and I went blank. I froze. And when my coach noticed that I looked like a deer in the headlights, he directed his attention away from Darius and to me. And so he's like, you've got to be kidding me. You're in college. How do you not know what an oxymoron is? And he goes on and on. He's like, just tell me one. Give me one. Please, just give me one. And my teammates, as they're laughing, start just throwing them out left and right. And I could not think of a single thing. I froze. And it went on for, I think, about 10, 15 minutes. But it felt like an eternity because all this focuses on me. And it was just so mortifying, so embarrassing. And then finally, thankfully, the stretch period ends. And we're going on to our next drill. And then my coach says it. As we're walking away, he says, well, I know who I can't trust on fourth down. And thus went my Mercer football career. That was the turning point. It was downhill from that moment for me. Now, we can all probably think of different turning points, and so here's why I bring this up to you. Tonight, we're in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, a series that we started last semester as we walked through John's Gospel. And here in chapter 11, we find a turning point, a time where things begin to change for many reasons. That the first half of John is more of a zoomed out look where it's more broad and it's covering a few years of Jesus' ministry and life. But now after chapter 11, this whole rest half of the gospel of John is zoomed into one week of Jesus' life. It's a turning point. But it's also a turning point because this is really a key moment in what was going to happen at the end of that week. See, up until this point, Jesus had ruffled some feathers, some people were angry with him, even were talking about killing him. But after this moment, this is what so, so-called seals his fate, 
to where after this moment, it wasn't just talk of killing him. There was a plan put into action that at the end of this next week, they would put Jesus to death. And so this passage tonight that we're looking at in John chapter 11 is a turning point for the gospel of John. It's key. It's a focal point for his gospel. So we're going to dive into it. Now, we're not going to read all of John chapter 11 because really the passage, the story, takes up pretty much the whole chapter. And I figured you didn't want to sit here and listen to me talk for an hour and a half. So we're not going to read every verse in this passage. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell us the story, and then we'll focus on a couple of key verses, but I'm just going to kind of walk us through the story. And I'll encourage you to go and read the story on your own, maybe tonight or later on tomorrow as you're processing and thinking through this passage. Um, So we're going to tell the story, and then there at the end, I want to give us three truths that we can pull from this story, three truths that we can really sit with and meditate on as we leave here tonight. Now, this story, it's beautiful, and the story is one that is really engaging. There's some things that are a little bit strange in there, things that that make us kind of scratch our head and wonder why, but it's a story that really just draws us into it. It wants us to sit in the, the tension of this story. It's a story that many of us will be able to actually feel and see. It's really engaging, and it's all meant to elevate the truths that are in it. And so I want to encourage you as we talk through this story and look at it, if you've got your Bibles, have them open to John chapter 11 or maybe a Bible app, you can pull it up and just kind of have it in front of you as we talk through it so you can see it. But I want to encourage you to just lean into the story, to put yourself into the characters and the lives of the story, to put yourself into the story and feel it and see it as we engage with it and process it and then pull truths from it. So in John chapter 11, we begin and is introduced to this family, to this sibling group, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what we're told about these siblings is that they have a relationship with Jesus, that they have met him before, but it's beyond just a relationship. They are friends with Jesus. It's repeated all throughout John chapter 11 that Jesus loved these people, that they called him friend that he spent time with them, that he cared for these siblings. And what we learn is at some point in time, Lazarus, he gets sick. He falls ill. And it's not just some head cold or some sniffles that you can kind of brush by. He gets really, really ill to where it was a point of dire need. And the sisters, as they're going through and they're looking and they're saying, this does not look good for our brother Lazarus, what they do is they say, okay, we know Jesus, and we've seen and heard him do amazing things that he's, he's brought sight to blind people. He's healed people before. And so he's got the ability and he loves us. And so he can do something about this. And so the sisters send a message to Jesus and his disciples and say, hey, Jesus, Lazarus, the one whom you love, is ill. He's sick. He's not doing well. And they send this message in hopes that Jesus would do something. But then Jesus says something that's kind of puzzling. He says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. And if you know the story, it's a story that's somewhat familiar. If you know the story, you're like, wait a minute, what? The illness doesn't lead to death? Because the reality is the illness does indeed lead to death. We learn that later in the story. And so you're left saying, like, why would Jesus say that? It kind of, it confuses you a little bit. But he says, This illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory 
of God. And then it says something really strange where it says again and, and emphasizes that he loved them. And then in the next verse it says, so he stayed two days later. He loved them, so he stayed where he was for two days. And that is not at all what we would expect in this moment. What we would expect it to say is Jesus loved them, and so he hurried to them. He immediately left what he was doing and went to them to heal Lazarus. Or maybe we would expect it to say Jesus loved them, but he had so much ministry work to do that he had to apologize and say, hey, I'm so sorry I can't come. Or maybe what we really would expect is, is Jesus was busy with the work of the ministry, so he healed Lazarus from afar. Like, that's already happened in John where a man says, hey, my son is sick. Jesus, will you do something? Jesus says, hey, go home. Your son is well. And when the guy goes home and asks the people, his son is well, and it happened right at the time Jesus had said it. And so Jesus got the power to do something even from afar. He doesn't even have to inconvenience himself to go to him. But it doesn't say that says he loved him, so he waited two days. We're like, wait a minute, what? It doesn't make sense. And so he waits two days, and then afterwards he says, hey, we got to go to Judea. We got to go to where they are. And the disciples are like, whoa, 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 Jesus. I don't know if you remember. I don't think this is a great idea, because last time you were over there, you ruffled some feathers. You healed a guy on the Sabbath, and it really made some people mad. You started claiming things about equality with God, and, and you made some statements that were pretty strong, and you really upset them, and they were trying to kill you. You probably don't. I know you're God. I know you're, like, all-knowing and all that, but this might not be a good idea, Jesus. And Jesus then says some uh, cryptic line about walking in the day and then at night not walking. It's kind of weird, but what he's essentially saying is, hey, my time hasn't come just yet. Something he told his mother in the beginning of John. My time has not come. The time for me to die, the time for the sun to set on my ministry, my time here on earth is not today. So we're going, and you're going to be fine. So let's go. And so he gives them that confidence. He said, hey, we're going. And then he says something weird again. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, so I got to go and wake him up. And the disciples who really don't want to go because of the danger, they're like, Jesus, if he's asleep, like, I mean, he'll wake up again. Like, I mean, he's just taking a nap. Like, he's going to be fine. And Jesus finally was like, okay, I'm going to tell you plainly, Lazarus has died. And again, you're like, wait a minute. Jesus, you said Lazarus, the illness didn't lead to death, but now you're saying that he died. And it's not because Jesus didn't know. He's all-knowing. He knows. So what's going on here? He says, Lazarus has died. And then he says something puzzling again. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. So he says, hey, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him, which we're like, whoa, that feels weird for Jesus to say. But he says there's a purpose in it. He says, so that you will believe. A theme that's repeated all throughout John, that the whole book is centered around us believing in who Jesus is, putting trust in the person of Christ. So, so I'm glad I wasn't there so that you will believe, but hey, we've got to go. And then Thomas makes a smart comment at the end where he's like, well, let's go so we can die too. Like he's, that, that sarcasm, you're like, gotta love Thomas. Everyone knows a Thomas. You might be a Thomas. So he's like, hey, let's go. We got to die too. And so they go, they go to the sisters, and when they get there, 
it says a key statement where it says that Lazarus had been dead four days when he got there. That he had been dead four days. Now what he's saying there, what it's trying to communicate is that Lazarus is dead dead. Like in Jewish tradition, what they would believe is that when someone died, that their spirit would kind of hang out around the body. And then up to a certain point, it would try to re-enter the body. But then when it hit kind of that fourth day and the body began to decompose, they believed that the spirit would then leave and go and wouldn't re-enter. There would be no chance. And so what uh, what John's communicating here, what it's emphasizing that when Jesus gets onto the scene, there's no hope. It's a hopeless situation. And so he gets there, and it says that Martha comes out to meet him, one of the sisters. And when she sees him, she makes a statement that shows the wrestling of her heart. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, we we know you're powerful. We know you have that authority, and we know you... You love us. That's what we sent for you. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And you can get a sense of the tension of her heart here. As she goes to him and expresses confidence and faith in him, like, Jesus, I know that you have that authority. I know you have that power. But, Jesus, I'm struggling here. But then she follows up with a statement where she says, yet I know even now, that whatever you ask God, he will give you. It's a strong statement of faith. But there's this tension within her. And then Jesus says something incredible. Where he says, hey, Lazarus will live again. And what you know is that's what he was talking about in the beginning. Where he says, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. We know that his intent from the beginning was to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that's exactly what he's going to do. But what Martha sees is that she sees an even bigger picture, and she says, yeah, she's not even thinking about it being possible for him to be raised in this moment, but she says, hey, I know on the last day he's going to rise. And what she's pointing to is the truth of on the last day, God's people will be resurrected and brought to life. And then we hear some key verses here from Jesus, some incredible verses that really are the whole emphasis of the whole uh, passage, the whole story. It's found in chapter 11, verse 25. It says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says, this resurrection you're speaking of, this last day where God's people will be raised to life, he says, that comes through me. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And we've talked about how that phrase, I am, that's used in John by Jesus a few different times, is him connecting himself with God. In the Old Testament, when Moses is talking to God about going to Egypt to rescue the Israelites, what he says is, says, hey, who should I say has sent me? And God responds and says, I am who I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. The divine name Yahweh means he is. He's the essence of all that is, the essence of life itself. And so when Jesus says I am, the actual Greek, more literally translated, would be I am, I am. 
in these phrases. And so when Jesus says this, he's connecting himself with God. And then what he's saying here is that this in resurrection, it only comes through me. That whoever believes in me, trusts in me, though they die, yet shall they live. That whoever believes in me will never truly die. And then he asks her, he says, Martha, do you believe this? And she makes a profound statement of faith. says, yes, you are the son of God, the one who is to come. The story continues, and Jesus says, hey, go get your sister Mary. And so Martha goes and tells Mary that the teacher's asking for her. And so she comes out from where she is, and they would have hired mourners at the time, and the mourners that were all there see her leave, and they don't know where she's going, so they all follow her, so there's a crowd going with her. And when she goes out and she sees Jesus, she falls at his feet, weeping at his feet over the loss of her brother. And she repeats what Martha has said already. And again, when we see repetition in Scripture, it's adding emphasis, and it's the question that that really permeates the whole story, she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you would have been here, I know that you're powerful enough, and I I know that you love us. That's why we sent for you. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And you can sense the conflict within her heart, the struggle that she's wrestling with, that she's at a position of submission, seated at his feet, weeping at his feet, and it's showing honor and reverence and trust and faith and confidence, yet there at his feet she is weeping and saying, Jesus, if you had been here, I know that you could have done something. Why? Why didn't you come? In the next verses, there's this really confusing statement where Jesus, he sees the weeping, and he sees the weeping of all the people, and it says he's greatly troubled in his spirit. That really what it's saying is he is frustrated to his core. And we got to be careful here because it doesn't say he was greatly troubled to his spirit because of X, Y, and Z. So it doesn't give specifics here, and we need to be careful about trying to make it say something that it's not actually saying. I think at times there gives some ambiguity to it, just invite us in to wrestle with it. But some have offered up that Jesus sees their weeping and he counts it kind of as a lack of faith and it frustrates him. I just don't see that in the text. I think when you look at the context and you look at what's coming next and you look at how he's interacting with them, I don't, I don't believe that to be true. But some have offered up that when he sits there and he sees them weeping, he sees their brokenness. He gets frustrated because he sees the what death has done. That this is the agent of creation. Jesus was there in the beginning, the, the one who created all things, for whom all things were created. He knows how it was designed to be. He knows what it's supposed to be, and yet he's seeing the results of a fallen and broken world. He's seeing, and he's face to face with the enemy of death itself, and it infuriates him. He sees their brokenness, and he just gets so mad because these are his friends. These are people he loves, and he sees what death has done, and he knows death is not a rightful place in this world. And so he's frustrated, 
And he looks at the people there and he says, hey, where have you buried Lazarus? Where have you taken him? And so they say, come and see and we'll show you. And then we get the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And it's not the same weeping that we see the other people doing, that there's a different word there. Their weeping is wailing, it's sobbing, it's uncontrollable. His is more tears and just crying. But we see him weeping and we're like, wait a minute, why? Jesus, from the beginning, has said what he's going to do. Like, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. What we'd almost expect him to do here is say, hey, why are you crying? Stop crying. I'm going to raise him. Just stop. It's fine. Dry it up. It's good. Believe in me. Trust in me. And we'd almost expect that, and it kind of would make sense. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. I mean, at the very least, we would think maybe he just says nothing and just goes, but it says he cries with them. And I think we see a beautiful picture of the character of God here. Something that it tells us in Scripture, something that's demonstrated all throughout, is God is near to the brokenhearted. That his friends are hurting. And yeah, he's going to raise Lazarus. He's going to restore it. He's going to make things new. And even if he wasn't, he can zoom out and see the bigger picture that Ra- Lazarus will be raised in the last day. He can see the bigger picture. He knows what's happening. Yet, he knows they're broken and they're hurting. And their heart is hurt, and so is his. That he's lost a friend, and that they are in pain. And so he, who is gentle and lowly at heart, who is kind and compassionate and near to the brokenhearted, weeps alongside them. And when the people see it, they say, see, he loved him. And then they echo that same sentiment that's been said throughout. Isn't this the man who gave sight to the blind, surely he could have kept them from dying. Essentially, he he was powerful enough to do something, and he clearly loves them. Why didn't he do something? We're left with that tension that we've talked about this whole time. So they go, and they get to the tomb, which would have been a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, and it's says that line again where he is frustrated to his core. He sees again that the enemy of death face to face with it, and it infuriates him. And then as he's there, he says, hey, roll away the the stone, roll it away. And Martha, being just very pragmatic, she's like, hey, Jesus, if you roll it away, he's been dead for four days, like, he's gonna smell. And uh, my buddy Adam pointed out to me that apparently in the KJV, it says that, Lord, he will stinketh, or he stinketh. And I just thought it was funny. I can't, like, unsee that now. They said, hey, he's going to smell. He's been dead. He's like, he's been dead for a while, Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I told you that if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. So he says, roll away the stone. And they roll away the stone. And he prays. He prays, Lord, I I know that you hear me. I know you always hear me. But he, he prays, not just to them, but he prays for the benefit of the people around him. And we see a beautiful truth about prayer is prayer is absolutely a personal communication between us and God, and it's it's an ongoing conversation with us and God, yet there's times when prayer has this horizontal element as well, that we pray to God also for the encouragement and benefit of others. That's why we pray in, in gatherings like this, and on Sunday mornings, and our home teams, and while we pray with friends, as we pray to God, and we pray for the encouragement 
of other people. So he prays, and then he says this there in the last verses, in verse 43. He says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So he calls into the grave, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out of the grave. He's still got the grave cloths on him. He says, hey, take the dead man's cloths off him. He is alive now. And he goes, and Lazarus lives. And it's this beautiful story, one, again, that has invited us into to, to really feel and see and see this miraculous worth of Je- work of Jesus. And it says that many believe from this work. But there's got to be a question of, okay, why did it happen like this? Like, why does Jesus do this miracle? I mean, he could have just called him from the beginning. He said, hey, Lazarus is healed. Boom, he's healed and it's done. Why does Jesus go and take the time to raise him from the dead? What, what we got to understand is it's not just a miracle for miracle's sake. It's not just a parlor trick that Jesus is doing. It's not even an ultimate solution for Lazarus. Lazarus is going to die again. Like in the next uh, chapter, we're going to see people are actually trying to kill Lazarus. Which is like, poor guy can't catch a break. But they're trying to kill Lazarus. So, so we're saying, okay, why does he do this? And what we learn in the following verses is, yes, many believed in Jesus because of this. But there were some who went and they tattled on him and went to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were getting frustrated. And what they said was, this man's doing many signs and the people are going after him. See, John calls his miracles all throughout signs. And what signs do is they point to something. And so what we learn is this happens all to point to something. It's all to point to those verses that we read. It's all to point what would take place this next week in Jesus' life. See, the reality that we see in Scripture, the reality that we can see by not even looking far in our world, is that this world is broken. This world is full of dead people. That all of us, because of sin, are spiritually dead and far from God. That we are without hope. But God, rich in mercy and rich in love, stepped down into his creation. That he put on flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live perfectly righteous in every way. But what's going to happen here in the next week of Jesus' life is he would be taken and arrested. He would be put through a mockery of a trial where he'd be found guilty when he indeed was actually innocent. He'd be beaten and scourged and be hung on a cross on an instrument of death. And there on the cross, what Scripture says is that he who knew no sin became sin. That he took on the sins of the world. And that on that cross, God poured out his wrath and his judgment on sin. And on that cross, Jesus died. They took his lifeless body, they wrapped him in cloth, they stuck him in a tomb just like Lazarus, and they rolled a stone in front of the mouth of the cave. But on the third day, what we celebrate, what Jesus was proclaiming and pointing to, is that on the third day there was a quake 
the stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped forth and was raised from the grave into life. And then what he promises becomes a reality for us, that he is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him, that's trust in him, puts their trust in him and who he is and what he did on the cross and that God raised him from the dead. When whoever believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. That whoever believes in him will not truly die. That there will be a day where they will be raised up on that last day and they will dwell with their God forever because their sins were crucified on the cross of Christ and his righteousness was used to clothe them And so they dwell with him forever and ever. That is what this passage is pointing to. But we have to admit, as we read a passage like this, that as we're invited into a passage like this, there's a struggle in a lot of our hearts. There's a struggle because we get it. That for many of you, you can feel the feelings of Mary and Martha. That you've been through some really hard things. Or maybe going through some really hard things. And so you can feel that tension and that wrestling in your heart where you're like, God, I, I know you're powerful and I know you're big and you're strong and you're sovereign. I get that. And Lord, I, I know you love me. But Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you would have been here, my mom wouldn't have gotten sick. Lord, if you were, had been here, my parents wouldn't have gotten divorced. Lord, if you had been here, my sister wouldn't have been abused. Lord, if you had been here, my friend wouldn't have died in that car wreck. So we feel that wrestle and that tension where we have moments where we're like, yes, I trust you, and we can speak with confidence, but there's still this turmoil within our hearts where in our suffering, it's hard, and we've got questions. So what do we do with it? Well, I want to give us three truths to kind of run to here as we kind of wrap up at the end. Three truths that as we wrestle with these tensions, three truths to run to, to cling to, to remind ourselves of, to to hang on to. Three truths seen in this passage. Number one is this. Jesus gives purpose to our suffering. Jesus gives purpose to our suffering. What we see is, it says that Jesus loved them, so he waited. That there's intentionality there, that he waited because there was a bigger plan in place. Jesus told the disciples, hey, it's good that I wasn't there for your sake, so that you may believe that Jesus had a bigger plan in play in this moment, that there wasn't this chaotic event that Jesus was like, oh my gosh, scrambling, what am I going to do? What's happening? There was a bigger plan that he is sovereign over, and he, there was purpose to the circumstances. What it tells us in Romans 8, 28, is that God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That all things are worked for good. All things are worked for God's glory and our good. That our good, the good for his people and his glory, are one and the same. That they are synonymous. That all things are worked for those things. So everything that happens, there's nothing that God's scrambling saying, oh no, I didn't see that coming. Or oh no, what, I don't know what I'm going to do here. 
that he has a purpose to it. I was just reading this past week the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and Joseph had his brothers sell him into slavery when he was a boy. And then there in slavery, he gets mistreated and abused, and then he goes and he's put into jail, and then in jail, bad circumstances again and again. But what you find is through these circumstances, Joseph finds himself in a place of power so that when there's a famine throughout the land, God, through God's providence and wisdom, he's able to stockpile food so that the nations are coming to Egypt so that they can find food, including Joseph's family. And his whole own brothers are coming to him for food all these years later. And what you expect is Joseph to be like, uh-huh, now you need me, right? Like you expect him to say, no, tough. You remember what you did? But no, you get this profound statement from Joseph saying, hey, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That he used this to bring about the salvation for many. And so Joseph was kind to them and compassionate to them. That he fed them and took care of them. That because of him, he, they were able to stay alive and make it through this famine. But what he says is what you intended for evil, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. There's a purpose to all things, including our suffering. Now, this doesn't mean we're always going to know the why. We're not going to know every single detail. There's times in God's grace that we might see it, and he might allow us to see pieces of it. I can think of in my life when my granddad got sick. Um, there in his last year of life, he was, uh, Hurricane Michael came through, and they lost their house. They lost a ton of money because they were in the timber business, and he got diagnosed with throat cancer. And after getting diagnosed with throat cancer, he had surgery, went to uh, the hospital, did chemo, radiation, and it took a toll on him. But after all of that, all of that suffering, he was cleared of cancer, only to find out a week later that he had colon cancer, and it was terminal. And it was hard. It was hard on him, hard on my family, to watch him in pain and suffer. But here's what I can tell you is that even amidst that pain and suffering, God in his grace showed me his goodness. That I, my, our granddad was someone that we weren't sure where he stood with the Lord. That we really didn't think he was a believer. And through this pain and suffering and opened up conversations where I got to share the gospel with him and talk with him, I saw him repent of sin. God in his grace even allowed them to move closer to us. So I spent more time with our granddad during that year than I ever did before then and got to spend good, sweet time together. I got to watch him delight in reading his Bible. I didn't, he was so sick, I didn't think there was any way he would do that. And he was reading on his own without even me giving him things. Now, the man chose like Revelation and Ezekiel and some really dark things, but I watched a genuine change in his heart. And so that time was hard. I'm not trying to minimize it. But God was so good in that time. I could see his purposes outworking. And we don't always get to see it, but we can trust that that's what he's doing. I love the example that J.D. Greer gives. Is he says, you think of a tapestry. And if you look on the back of a tapestry, there's all these loose threads, and it seems like chaos. It's, you're like, what is going on? But when you flip it around, you see that every thread was sewn with intent and purpose to create a beautiful masterpiece. So that's what it looks like for us. 
that in this life, as we experience circumstances and suffering and pain, it seems chaotic. It seems like things are out of control. But what we'll learn is on the other side of eternity, we'll see the other side, and we'll see that it wasn't chaos at all, that it was threaded with intent from a skilled artist to display the glory of God. And so Jesus gives purpose to our suffering. Second truth is Jesus meets us in our suffering. Jesus meets us in our suffering. See, Jesus goes to the, to the family because he, he was going to do a wonderful work for the glory of God, yet he goes not just as a Savior, not just as a miracle worker, he goes as a friend. He goes as someone who is near to the brokenhearted, who is gentle and lowly at heart, who is kind and compassionate. What it tells us in the New Testament is that we rejoice with those who rejoice, but we weep with those who weep. So Jesus goes and he is near to the brokenhearted. He wept with them, alongside them. He knew what he was about to do for them, but he doesn't rebuke them and say, hey, stop crying. No, he meets them where they are. Let me tell you, Jesus is big enough to take your questions. He's big enough to handle your doubts. He is not some distant deity who does not care. He is a personal Savior who is no stranger to suffering. That God, in all his glory, he left that and stepped down into broken into this broken world, that he suffered. He lived the human existence that we live. He suffered loss. He suffered rejection by close friends. He suffered pain and sickness and illness. And then ultimately, he suffered an excruciating death where he took on the weight of the sins of the world and took on and drank fully the cup of God's wrath. He is no stranger to suffering. He gets what you're going through. He's sympathetic to that. But not only is he no stranger to your suffering, he is close to you who suffer. He's near to the brokenhearted. What the promise that was secured through his death and resurrection is that those who believe in him receive his spirit within us. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is closer than our breath. Close like a friend. And so when you are in your pain and in your suffering, you need to understand that God is not distant and unsympathetic, but that he is close, and he knows, and he cares, and he loves you deeply. And the third truth is this. Jesus promises an end to our suffering. Jesus promises an end to our suffering. That when Jesus says, hey, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, and Martha points to that last day, what the reality is is that the suffering that we experience will not be prolonged for those who are his children. That there will come a day where suffering will be no more. That the enemy of death will be put, put to death. What it tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, what Paul writes is this, is, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
He, I love the, the example he uses of falling asleep. The same thing he's, John said, he says, those who has died, he said, I want, you, want to inform you of this, is that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we don't grieve as those with no hope. That yes, we grieve and it hurts and it's painful, but we grieve as those with an abundance of hope, knowing that because of Christ, that when he returns, he will call to himself his own, that we will live again and dwell with him. And in that day, death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. What Revelation tells us that when Christ returns to retrieve his bride, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes that death and suffering will be no more, that we will dwell with him in bliss and joy forever and ever and ever. Your suffering is not forever when you are a follower of Christ. That I know that that sometimes it's hard to see because in the moment it hurts, and I'm not trying to minimize it all. But there's something to the reality of knowing that it's but for a season. That In this life, we're going to have trouble. Jesus promises that. But we can take heart because he's overcome the world. And in him, there's an abundance of hope. And this life is but a small water molecule in an ocean of an eternal bliss with our Father. And so we can take heart. We can persevere knowing that the suffering is but for a season. It's not our ultimate reality. And so my hope is that these three truths will be things that we dwell on, things that we run to, that as we experience hard things, when we are brokenhearted, that we will cast our eyes to Christ and dwell in these truths and let them bring us comfort and hope and perseverance. A statement that I found helpful is this, Jesus' past work secures our future hope and gives us present Jesus' past work, his death and resurrection, secures our future hope, our hope for resurrection, our hope for the day with no more tears, our hope for no more pain, no more suffering, death no more. And that gives us present comfort, knowing that he is with us, he's working all things for our good. I think it's helpful as we think of truths and we dwell on truths, we ask ourselves, What does this demand of me? What must I do in light of this? How does this shape my life? And there's there's some of you here tonight, and you're like, I I feel almost guilty saying this, but I'm good right now. I'm not suffering. I'm not in pain. And hey, don't feel guilty for that. Praise God. That's a gift. That's an act of grace. But here's the reality that is that there are those around you, many, who are in pain, who are suffering. Now, here's what you can't offer them. You can't offer them what you don't have the power to do is to fully take their suffering away, to change their circumstance, to make it just magically go away. I know you want to do that. That's what I want. When people come to me with the problems, I want to say, here, let me fix it, and it's gone. But the reality is we don't have that power oftentimes. What we would love to do is to be able to explain it and say, say, I know you're suffering, but here's all the reasons why God's letting this happen. Here's all the reasons for your suffering. But we don't have that authority either. Here's what you can offer. Is you can offer sympathy and you can offer confidence. Sympathy and confidence. That we can take the cue of Christ. 
to be near to the brokenhearted, to weep with those who weep. Now, what that, that means is not you coming in and hitting them in the head with the Bible. <laughs> See, that's, I had a professor in uh, a counseling class say this, hey, when you're uh, with those who are suffering, show up and shut up. Show up and shut up. He said Job's friends were great. Old Testament Job who suffered, he said they were great till they opened their mouths. There's something to us just saying, hey, I get it. My heart is broken for you. And to be with them, to care for them, to genuine, have genuine compassion for them. And then, in humility, with, with you pleading for God for wisdom, you, uh, in the right way, in the right time, with the right tone, point them to the confidence and the hope that they have in Christ. That's what you have to offer them. There are those of you here who are suffering And again, I'm sorry, my heart breaks for you. But here's what I want for you. Is I want you to know that apart from believing in Christ, there's no hope. But in believing in Christ, there's an abundance of hope. My, My hope and prayer for you is that you would take the cue of Martha and Mary and that in your pain, in your tears, you would find yourselves at the feet of Jesus. Even with your questions and your doubt, And you would cast your eyes to his finished work, his life, death, and resurrection. That you would let that point you to the truth and the reality that he is working all things for your good. To the reality that that your suffering is but for a season. And that you would feel his closeness and his presence in your life. And you would allow that to give you an abundance of hope that you would be one who grieves, yes, but one who grieves as one with an overflowing abundance of hope. That's my hope and that's my prayer for you.